Well, good morning. It is so good to see all of you, to hear your voices in praise. And if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us as well. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, if you're using the Bibles here, it's page 960, so you can follow along in this important passage. When God looks at his world of people, he really does see two classes of people. He sees those who are in his family and those who are not. Because we become part of his family when we put our faith in his son. John 1.12 says that to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to be called God's children. God loves all the world. He died for all the world. But as believers in Christ, we are indeed special. Kind of like a mom on a playground. There's a lot of kids. <laughs> but those two, three, whatever, those are hers. And then there's everybody else. That's how God sees the world. But let's narrow the perspective a little bit when God looks at his family photo. As he looked at his family photo, those who have come to faith in Christ, he still sees some that are more disobedient and more, or more obedient at the time, right? He, he, like a parent, he can discern who is, who is eager to follow him and obey him and who is resistant or defending or excusing something in their life. That's what he sees when he sees the family photo. As we look at our passage today, Paul names names, three names. One of them, the, the one for whom the book is titled, Timothy, is that man who is eager to obey. But we also see the names of two others, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Let's read our passage, 18 through 20. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. It seems that all three of these men are part of the family photo. To Timothy, he says, keep it up. Fight the good fight. Stay spiritually faithful. But to Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says, they are out of second chances. And they are facing spiritual accountability. It's a serious passage. Timothy, you got to be ready for the battle. I give you these instructions in keeping with the prophecies made about you so that by following them you may, you may fight the good fight. Timothy was a spiritual leader, so he was a, in a spiritual battle. Every spiritually minded believer will recognize the spiritual battle. If you want to be used by God the way he intended you to be used, Satan is against you. It is a real battle. 
Timothy, my son, he's, he's personal. Timothy has been his, the man he mentored. And now he has entrusted Timothy with leadership of the church in Ephesus at a difficult time because one of his tasks will be to confront these false teachers. So he must be man enough. He must be spiritually strong enough. He must be leader enough to confront them. And so in, in light of the difficulty of what he is asking Timothy to do, he says, I need you to go back to remember your call to this ministry. I give you this instruction, probably going back to chapter 1, verse 3, to go and deal with the false teachers. I give you this instruction in light of or in keeping with the prophecies that were once made about you. What are those prophecies? We see a reference to it later on that there was an actual event where they laid hands on Timothy, chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect your gift, Paul tells Timothy, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So there was a certain church service or something where they did this. We know the elders were present, and from the second letter he wrote, we know that Paul was present. For this reason, he reminds Timothy again, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Every believer in Christ has a spiritual gift for God to use them in some way. Timothy, make sure that you fan it. It doesn't just happen. You have to take initiative to find and utilize and be used by God. The laying on of hands here does not mean that Paul gave Timothy the spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit gives the spiritual gifts, but it was revealed or confirmed with absolute certainty because Paul, in that first generation of Christians in the New Testament age, Paul had the gift of prophecy by which he heard directly from God. And so he could say, you have this gift. Uh, The gift is not specifically mentioned, but based on what Timothy is doing, it's most likely it was the shepherd-teacher gift uh, that Paul describes in Ephesians 4.11 for church leadership. Uh, Today, God still uses other people in the body to confirm spiritual gifts. Uh, As you, you know, don't get all bent out of shape if you know exactly what your gift is, but you begin to see that in in Scripture, several passages about how he steers us. You know, sometimes people want a certain ministry, but they need it to be confirmed by the body. That's why we function together. And so the body can confirm that, yeah, this is a good fit, this probably is where you can best serve. What about this particular gift of Timothy? How is that, what is that gift and how is it recognized? Today, since we don't have uh, apostles and prophets who are receiving direct revelation, there is a process we commonly call ordination by which it is recognized by a church body that someone is called to this kind of full-time leadership ministry. It's, it's an effort to follow this principle of the laying on of hands. Here at Open Door, if you have read our church constitution, and I, I assume you've all refreshed yourself on that this week, but if, uh, if you've read it, you see there's a section about how, to, how, how we would practice this ordination thing. 
Pastor Seth and Pastor Jim, who's now retired, were both ordained through Open Door. Uh, there was an ex examination by an ordination council of their doctrine and their, their ministry practices and experience. And then the church officially ordained them according to the practice of our, the way our constitution reads. Someone needs to be in full-time ministry for a year to be, to be examined for that. Uh, Pastor Nate was ordained at the church where he served in Illinois before coming here. Uh, this week I went to my file and found my ordination certificate. April 29, 1984, the elders of Mesquite Bible Church in Mesquite, Texas, going through the same process, uh, uh, did that on, on my behalf, where we had served there, uh, for so long I lived there and served there and attended there for uh, almost four years doing seminary. But the point is that a biblical church takes spiritual leadership seriously. Another passage in addition to this laying out of hands that always stands out to me is James 3, 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I'm, I'm used to public speaking, and so it's actually not really frightening to me, if I've prepared well, <laughs> to, to speak before people on a weekend like this. But this is what concerns me is that everything I say, as I open God's word with people, everything I say is evaluated by God. And so I cannot leave out something that he has said. And I cannot simply apply it according to my own agenda, my own opinions, or someone else's opinions. Because you won't be examining me, I won't be examining myself, but God is going to be examining me, and that is what must be my constant concern. So Timothy, as you lead and bring the word and deal with issues in the church there, you've got to remember that God called you to this, and Timothy, be sure to fight the good fight. The good fight, the word means appropriate, or it's like, Fighting the right fight? There's a lot of fights. Make sure you're fighting the right fight. It's a spiritual and internal fight for your soul, Timothy. The way we know that is because he says you've got to hold on to faith and a good conscience. That's the real fight. If you're going to be used by God however he has designed you, it's a fight. In fact, this term, fighting the fight, is not like a battle. It's a, it's, a, it's a present tense, continual, it's a war. You are in war if you want God to use you. Because you have an enemy who doesn't want you to be used by God. So, whether it's a ministry, whether it's your family, whether it's your personal spiritual life, it's a battle. Satan's going to throw everything he can at you in terms of temptations and distractions. He wants to ruin your marriage. He wants you to fall prey to, to lust and the deceit of immorality. He wants you to fail at the ethical dilemmas you might face in your job. 
He wants you to fall prey to anything on your screens. He wants you to to submit to your flesh when it comes to anger and bitterness against other people. That's what he does. And so we must fight the good fight. How do we do that? Holding on to faith and a good conscience. The word faith is used a number of ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it means, I think that's the case here, the body of truth that we believe that is taught by Christ and the apostles. So hold on to faith, what you know of God's word, and then what else? A good conscience. That is what you know in your heart you're doing that is obedient to God. So really it boils down to two things. It is what you believe, what you know to be true, and it's how you apply it. It's the good conscience before God. That, that two sides of the spiritual coin is repeated continuously in the New Testament. If you glance ahead to chapter 4, verse 416, 4, again, Paul tells Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Your doctrine What you believe about God and what is right and true is what will become what you do in your life if you apply it. There's this truth, the faith, and there's the obedience by which God speaks in our conscience. One other time, Paul uses this exact term for fighting of spiritual warfare in the New Testament. It's this passage in 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, referring to Satan's false and deceptive desires in our life. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, see the doctrine, and take thought every captive to obey Christ, the obedience, doctrine, obedience, this is the warfare. This is the right spiritual battle. This is, this is, Paul is telling the Corinthians here how he lived consciously of, of, of the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to Christ. And the way you do that, what does what the passage say? It's not through human methods. It's not just writing notes to ourselves. even. That's, that can be good. But it's by the knowledge of God. Write scripture to yourself. You're going to have to be in the word of God. And then conscious of your thoughts. The the real issues are internal. The, The selfishness, the bitterness, the resentment we might harbor towards one another is an internal thing where only the Holy Spirit has access the uh, negativity, the, the frustrations, the attitudes, the impurity. It's, it's all about what's going on within us. Timothy, hold on to the faith. You know what's true and right and a good conscience before God and so take every thought captive to Christ. When God transforms us, And that is the process we're in as believers. This is family truth, right? When he transforms us, 
He does it by our thoughts. So don't simply pay attention to what you say or do. Go deeper to say, what am I thinking? There was a season a lot of people talked about, you know, what would Jesus do? Just take it a little deeper. What would Jesus think? As I'm struggling with an attitude towards someone, what would Jesus think about this person? If we're struggling with the temptation of our mind, what would Jesus think? We actually know because Jesus was tempted like we are, Hebrews 4, and Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan himself, one-on-one. And do you remember how Jesus responded to every temptation in his humanity? What did he do? He quoted scripture. If Jesus in his humanity used the word of God, depended upon the truth of scripture to obey the Father, how could we do anything less than being, how could we ever think that we would have a good conscience before God apart from being immersed in the word of God? It is good to gather around the word of God each week. But if the last time you were in the word of God was the last time you sat here, it won't transform your thoughts. Timothy, you can't lead at Ephesus, accomplish God's purpose for you unless you hold to the faith, what you know, and keep a good conscience. And to each of us, he is saying, you know, we can't lead our family unless we hold on to faith and a good conscience. Everyone has a conscience, okay? We're made in the image of God, and so we understand right and wrong. All of humanity has some sense of conscience. But we in the family are miles ahead because the Holy Spirit brings actual conviction because he dwells within us. And this is even the better news. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to respond to conscience. So we have everything we need for life and godliness, like like Peter would later write. We have all that we need. So are you sensitive personally when the Holy Spirit, can, can you sense when he's speaking to you through the word? And when you feel your flesh rising up, do you go, oh, I need the Spirit's work. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Or are you slipping to the side where you need the rebuke of some human being to call your attention to it? Because the real war is within, and and he wants to work from within us. Timothy, keep a good conscience. Every, virtually every influence we have through our week is from the world. Whether it's coworkers or friends or screens or books or whatever so we're going to need a a full immersion therapy of the god the word of god to permeate our hearts so that our conscience is alive to the work of the spirit in us in the more classic passage on spiritual warfare ephesians 6 paul says to this same group that Timothy is leading. This is just a couple years later than Paul wrote this passage to the Ephesians. He's now writing to Timothy, leading the church in Ephesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It's real. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not the people that we're blaming, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Is this real to you? That there is an enemy. Now, don't give the enemy Satan too much credit. He's not omniscient. He doesn't read your thoughts. He's not sitting on your shoulder dressed in red. He doesn't... doesn't, pay personal attention to everyone. He's not God's equal. But he has set in motion in this world the evil that comes through every other means to fight against us. He's a a roaring lion seeking to devour who? Us, believers. So what do we have in defense? That's the armor. Therefore, here's a brief summary of it, put on the full armor of God, the belt of truth, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the the, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is this, the word of God, and then pray. Verse 18 is all about praying for oneself and for each other in this spiritual battle. All of us are fighting a spiritual battle. Every Christian you meet here today is fighting a spiritual battle with their own flesh from within. And what they're going to need, this armor is not some mystical thing that you, 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 you pray a certain way. You need truth. You need the assurance of the gospel, or else it means a focus on the gospel, that you're, you're do, you're, you're, your goal is the right thing, to see people come to faith. The shield of faith probably means here you've got to trust God, not yourself, or your strength. Salvation, appreciating the privilege of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. and It's all the same things that the whole New Testament is teaching us. It's nothing new. It's nothing different. But this is what we have. We have some nice facilities. Looks great, doesn't it? Satan doesn't care. Our attendance is back to normal. Our Our finances are encouraging. Satan doesn't care. Because that's not his battlefield. His battlefield is to destroy our marriages. His battlefield is a battle with immorality, with addictions. To be saturated with greed. To resent one another to be distracted from our gospel purpose, to long for the approval and admiration of others instead of God himself. Let's make sure we're fighting the real spiritual battle because we have everything we need in Christ and in the Word and in the Spirit. The second part of this passage is obviously said. Because Paul reminds Timothy that the saddest part of church leadership is that you have a front row seat to failure. Imenaeus and Alexander failed in this spiritual battle. Middle of verse 19. Unlike what I expect for you, Timothy, some have rejected these. What's that? Their faith and their good conscience. And so have shipwrecked. What a picture. Shipwrecked their faith. 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Because they were not spiritually faithful, they have now become spiritually accountable as part of the church in Ephesus. This phrase, as we'll discuss it, the, the, the shred of hope in this phrase is that one can be taught or learn not to blaspheme. They were blaspheming. But the word learn or taught, it actually, it's like the word disciplined not to blaspheme. Whatever this process is can be used of God to finally, as a last resort, turn a hard-hearted Christian around. So what was it that they were blaspheming? It's a, it's a word that can mean heresy. We actually have a clue when Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are our man Hymenaeus and another man, Philetus, who have departed from the truth. Here's, it, here's what it is. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. And here's the impact. And they destroy the faith of some. So this man, Hymenaeus, got some idea in his head from somewhere that when the, when the, when the scripture speaks of resurrection, it's something that's already happened like in our hearts or something. And so it was a denial. If the resurrection has already happened, that means it's not future, and it's not physical, because if we already have it, it's future. And this actually aligns with some ideas at that time called Gnosticism. Uh, possibly it, he was fed by those philosophies. There's another group called the Epicureans that Paul is probably re referencing with this same denial in 1 Corinthians where he quotes them and says, if the dead are not raised, then he quotes this philosophy found in other literature, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there is no actual resurrection, there is no heaven, there is no future, there is no eternity, let's just live it up. That's what our world is doing. And Hymenaeus and Alexander and evidently Philetus were teaching this to other believers. And what impact did that have? It was destroying their faith. And say, let's just live for today, too. So something had to be done. This uh, statement by Paul sounds like it was some kind of official sanction that would take place of these teachers. He describes it as handing them or delivering them over to Satan. This this step is something we call church discipline. Just as discipline in the family is unpleasant but necessary for family life, some kind of discipline is necessary, though unpleasant, in church family life as well. It's a, it's a step of last resort, if you will. Another time Paul used this exact phrase, delivered to Satan, about a case of immorality. This, this one here is heresy. Another was immorality in 1 Corinthians 5. 
it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. They took this, this grace to an extreme, like, hey, we tolerate anything. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning, and here it is, and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So that there would be some kind of a separation from the fellowship. So delivered to Satan is an act where a church like officially releases someone to their sin and ceases fellowship. A little later, Paul describes it in the same passage, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. There it is. For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. We'll come, come back to that, but clearly this idea of being handed over to Satan is the same thing as to be put out of the fellowship. Or a little later, again, the same passage, there are some other terms to kind of explain or describe it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or greedy, that's not the only issue in other words, or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. You couldn't go to work or Walmart. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who, this is important, claims to be a brother or sister, claims to be a believer, but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. So we've seen a variety of descriptions. It's to put out of the fellowship. It's handing over to Satan and it's not associating or eating with someone. You used to have them over for cookouts. If this takes place in a church family, you don't do that anymore. It doesn't mean you, you, you won't say hi in Walmart, but you would say, I, I would love to see you back in fellowship. What can be done to restore you? How can I help? to see you spiritually restored. At Open Door, our process, again described in the Constitution, based on the scriptures, uh, is that this step, which fortunately only been a handful of situations through the years where we went, had to go through this, but we draw the line for, for members of the church. We take membership seriously. So if someone has come through our, our welcome class, they have the opportunity to study the doctrine, the scriptures, and then to, to see how we seek to practice this principle. Our constitution describes that. And then if you choose, after taking the welcome class, to, to join as a member, what you are asking for is this kind of accountability. It, it, it's an act of love in a, in a family that we would want this kind of accountability. Anyone is welcome to attend any of our services or ministries, but if you join as a member, you're saying, I want someone to speak into my life and draw the line when it's needed. How does the church go about doing that? Paul describes it in both these passages, but it's based on what, this wasn't just like Paul thought this up, this was a great idea. This is based on the words really of Jesus in Matthew 18, and what Jesus describes is a gracious 
and gradual process that gives God time to work in the heart of the believer who is struggling with some level of serious sin. So here's how he describes it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained or regained or restored your relationship with this brother. And this can apply to a lot of different things that become serious enough that it has to be faced. People have to talk about it in the family. That it's private. It stays two people. But Jesus said, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is just spiritual common sense that someone claimed they did or said or whatever. Let's make sure that, is this really true? If so, the circle is still small, but the, but the, but the confrontation necessary has taken place and restoration could take place, but the church won't know about it. But if he refuses to them to listen to them, tell it to the church. For us, that means now somebody, this issue would come up in a congregational meeting. If he refuses to listen to the church, if that doesn't have the impact, then Jesus said, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus' illustration is, you know, the kind of people that you don't associate with. Jews typically didn't. When these steps are attempted and there's still no response, that's when this separation of fellowship needs to take place. Here's another part of this uh, process that required discernment. And if you think this is a difficult part for church leadership, you'd be right. Because we're often in that uh, place of initiating something like this. But not every sin is handled this way. If, if we had to confront every sin, that's all we'd ever do. Our, our sin runs deep. I mean, if, if you had to confront every sin in your marriage, that's all you'd talk about all day. Well, I think you might have had some sin in the, that. Im- I heard your tone of voice. I mean, that's all we would talk about in church. So obviously it's not everything. In fact, Jesus himself, uh, in response to Peter, saying, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? And Jesus says 490 times. Remember, it's not seven times, 70 times seven. And, and so there are, there are simple relational sins that we overlook and forgive. First Peter 4, 8, Peter said, love covers a multitude of sins. That, that's, the, that's what most of it, right? But then there are these that have to be addressed because they affect the larger church family and the testimony in the community. Hymenaeus was destroying the faith of some by teaching this heresy. It had to be handled. And they evidently have come through a process like this. We're done. And then there's this man in Cor- that we saw in Corinth, this immorality. Even the world knew that was wrong. So this man has rejected his conscience and the, and the, and the, the re- rebuke that, that we assume has taken place, and so they needed to take this step. The goal of discipline is not to shame, though doubtless it would involve that perhaps for the individual. The goal of church discipline is 
restoration. God's in the restoration business. So let's go back to this passage in 1 Corinthians where we see Paul alluding to the restoration process. When you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The flesh refers to his sin nature. And Paul says our goal is to address that, to destroy what sin is doing to this man so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is something we studied in prophecy. It's that it's, it's initiated with the rapture. Christ is coming back, and we're going to have this, this judgment seat of Christ, and we want this man to be ready for that. And so spirit, small s, so the human spirit can be saved, not eternally, the man is saved, he's going to heaven, but the spirit can be delivered from this sin, and so that he can be brought back into the fellowship and restored to fruitfulness, and we can, we can rejoice with him. The point is not to achieve shame. It's to achieve restoration and repentance. And so there's this time out from fellowship that is required. Go sit in Satan's corner for a while and see how that works. When there's been a line drawn and you are no longer have the, the prayer and support and love of your church family. Because the long-term view that I've observed these past decades is that the joy you try to find in sin never lasts. And so you need to experience what you're choosing. So choose well. Some good news. It seems that the situation in 1 Corinthians 5 was resolved with repentance. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, perhaps about this man, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. We can assume if it's the same man, there has been a brokenness and a repentance, that the Holy Spirit has done that work. So don't keep him at hand's length, in arm's length anymore. Just love him. And if it wasn't that man in 1 Corinthians 5, it seems somebody else who has come through the same process. Because God has been at work because this is God's way and God's worked. Over the years, there have been a few situations where someone has responded, sometimes in some of those previous stages. You'll never know, and you don't need to. Sadly, sometimes it's come to a more public stage. But God is calling us to spiritual faithfulness so that he doesn't have to work through spiritual accountability to that extent. Two issues today. As we look at Timothy, we realize that even Timothy and his spiritual leadership needed the same thing every believer does, holding on to the faith. 
and then responding with a good conscience. That's how you fight the real fight so that you don't have to face the hard knocks, the consequences, and chaos that you create in, the, in, in your, maybe your family or the church family when others have to step in and rebuke you. So fight the good fight. Be what God calls you to be. Don't live waiting for the shoe of, of accountability to drop, but rather have that, that tender heart towards the Spirit of God that you sense and you hear in your spirit from His Spirit. And He guides you. And he guides you. We, everyone sins. The issue is, are we soft? And, and, and did, does the Spirit have permission to guide us that we hear his voice clearly? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are very prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God we love. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, speak to us individually, that we would be those who fight the good fight, aware of the war within, aware of the enemy, aware of his deceitful scheming, and that we would hold on to the same word, that, that scripture that's been sitting on our shelves or unused in our app, and begin to let your word fill and transform and take our thoughts captive. Help us, Lord, to discern those stray thoughts and address them there and experience your forgiveness and your grace and power to be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.